This is the Living Fearless Today podcast, a show that helps men like you and me who are struggling to get unstuck and overcome fear to live confidently and courageously. I'm your host and transformation coach, Mike Forrester, helping you create the change you want now. Join me as I interview men who've conquered their challenges and soared to success as they spill their secrets on how they live fearless today. Well, hello and welcome back, my friend. Man, this week I'm joined by Eric DeRosa. And Eric has overcome anxiety. He's very much in the place of resilience. And when we've got that anxiety, man, there is nothing that feels resilient other than maybe the the way that that anxiety sticks around, right? You just don't feel like you can get free from it. Eric has totally transformed his life. And so I'm pumped to jump in here, have a conversation with Eric to help both you and I see how we can go ahead about building that resiliency, setting aside that that anxiety and the coping mechanisms that we've just become accustomed to. So, Eric, how are you doing today, my friend? Mike, thank you so much for having me on the show today. I'm really excited, even just from our discussion before we came on air, the connection. I can already feel is, is super deep. It's as though I'm, I'm talking to an old friend. So hmm. thank you and doing really great today. Thanksgiving is right around the corner living here in the Colorado Rockies ski season, uh, is, has kicked off, you know, closer to the Denver area already. And we open up on Thanksgiving day and it, it feels like that transition from fall to winter at least for me, uh, is, is a bit complete. And so really excited, excited to be here and, and to be talking with you and your audience today. I appreciate it. I may have to like mow the leaves out front of my house and then plan on next week coming skiing or snowboarding. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> the leaves here. So the leaves here hit the ground, uh, mid October as we were boarding a plane to, to head to Hawaii. And we haven't, yeah, we haven't had leaves on the trees for quite some time. Yeah. They're still, they're still on a lot of fallen, but there's still, still a lot on. So, oh man. Well, Eric, let's start off. What does life look like for you today on the professional side? Completely and totally different from what it used to look like. And I've actually made, I'm calling this my third act, which uh, it, uh, in many ways, I think about it in terms of, you know, a musical or a theater production. And it even changed for me within the last six months. So I was still... I was teaching skiing here in Colorado full time for 12 seasons mm-hmm. when I made the decision that I wanted to focus 100% of my time and my energy on my mental health business. And so life for me now is a uh, host of the From Survivor to Thriver podcast. I'm a mental health advocate. Uh, I like to think of myself as an inspirational speaker as opposed to a motivational speaker as I speak from my own lived experience, uh, as we'll talk about uh, here today. Uh, just recently, I've become a published author, which again is something when I, when I look back on the beginning of act one of my, my career was not something that I had ever dreamed about. And so for me, it's really the passion of my own lived experience and taking all of that and being able to speak on behalf of those who may not yet have a voice, be able to share my story in a way that I hope resonates with even your audience that's listening today. Uh, and just using all different forms of communication, whether it's the verbal uh, or the power of the pen, as they used to like to say, to be able to share my message and, and hopefully, you know, inspire other people to action and show other people that they're not alone on their personal journeys, that there's somebody else out there just like them. Mm. And that's so powerful. I know for me and, and, 
you likewise, we both talked about this, is we had it in our heads and just had this belief that it was just me. There's nobody else experiencing this. And it's like, as we begin talking about it, there's nothing further from the truth. We've yes. all got to struggle. <laughs> it's just we're we're doing this whole like mums the word. Yep. You know, if I don't speak about it, you can't look at me differently. That's right. And, and I uh, can't tell you how many times, at least once a day. And I should start to write this down somewhere and record it in a journal. At least once a day, the words cross my lips. You too, right? With a question mark. It's how many people that I meet or I speak with. And we start sharing stories or sharing experiences and I go, you too, right? And, you know, here I am three years, almost three years into doing the work that I'm doing. And I'm still blown away by how many people out there are just like us. Yeah. And and I think it takes a while to become accustomed to it because we've had decades of that belief becoming almost like stone in our life, right? Yes. It's, it's a rock solid belief. And so it's like, I need to erode this. Yes. <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's a fallacy, yep. but you know, it's like the more you have those, you know, you two, um, kind of situations, I think it helps us to even in our position, as much as we've come to that self-awareness and, and have seen other people, it begins to almost become, I guess, expected at, at a certain point where it's like, what am I going to hear from Eric that is similar, you know, different tales, but there's still that common thread. Yes. So we're yeah. more alike than we think. Totally. And it's, as you said, it's, you know, that, that giant stone or boulder, right. That's been there, uh, especially when it comes to men and it's been, it's been placed in front of us, let's say almost from the time of birth. And now I look at myself at 52 years old. And when I started my own work, it was kind of chiseling away at that boulder. And now, right, as I look and I say, okay, this is, you know, the time I have left on this planet to make an impact. I want to take a jackhammer now because the chisel doesn't get the work done fast enough. I want, I want to see this boulder blown to smithereens, uh, before, um, before I've, you know, left, left the planet, at least in my physical body. Yeah. Understood. And I fully agree. Well, let me jump back a bit. And what does life look like on the personal side? I mean, I, we know you're in Colorado, mm -hmm. you're getting to enjoy the snow, but what's the rest of the picture for you? Sure. Uh, so personal life for me, uh, I've been married to the same amazing, amazing woman for 26 years. We've been together for 31 years. We met uh, when we were both in university, just outside of Boston. And we've been together ever since. And I've been extremely lucky to have her by my side through all the different pieces and parts of my own journey. And she was, you know, right alongside me uh, during our time in New York. And as we transitioned our life here to uh, the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. And uh, I was actually just writing a piece uh, for Medium and talking about, it was interesting, the, the power of pets as, you know, these magical creatures in our lives. And we have, uh, one of our cats that we came to Colorado with, uh, we, we came with two. We have one remaining and, you know, animals have been such a big piece of my life and such a big piece of my healing journey. And so our cat Taylor, who, yes, was named 14 years ago after Taylor Swift. Before Taylor Swift was as popular as she is now, I named her uh, for a certain song that kept playing all the time. Uh, so it's my wife and, and Taylor. And as you said, you know, uh, getting to ski in the wintertime and getting to mountain bike in the summertime and, uh, you know, hike and do all of the amazing things up here in the mountains and, uh, and, spend uh, a few weeks every year on the island of Maui uh, and get to enjoy the benefits of the water water. I call it like I need my beach time. And then my time here in the mountains is, you know, frozen water getting to slide around on snow and, uh, and doing just a whole lot of writing these days. And um, which is 
which is something that I did when I was younger. And I really, mm. I put it on the back burner. I thought I was a much different, uh, brained person than I, than I really am. And, and so now I'm really letting that creativity flow, whether it's, you know, sitting behind the computer and writing or, or putting out a book or, um, putting out articles and music is a big part of my life. I'm a, I'm a self taught guitarist. And so, uh, you know, my personal life is now doing all of those things that bring me joy in life and that I get to do on my terms, not, uh, on someone else's terms. And, and also just getting to, you know, experience the, the fun pieces and parts of my healing journey each and every day. Cause that's what mm. it is. It's a journey and it's, and it's something that. Uh, just like anyone else, uh, who has gone through any type of, you know, physical, uh, illness, um, going through, you know, mental health challenges. It means that each and every day I have to do something, uh, that will focus on bettering each, that journey as I move forward. Yeah. One thing, and I didn't expect this, but from what you've said, I want to kind of ask this. Mm -hmm. So you, you are now writing again. It was something as a child you were doing, right? In your younger years. Was that something that you were passionate about back then that you set aside because it wasn't accepted or said, Hey, this is beneficial. And you're now picking up that passion again. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? So that's a great, great question. And I'm going to process it as I, as I, talk here. And so I think back, I was an avid, avid reader growing mm. up. And uh, I had this discussion with somebody while we were on vacation a few weeks ago. We were talking about the power of books and the power of writing and how the two uh, have, have really come together for me as well as they came together for this other person. And so It'll, it'll sound kind of strange to people, but I read my first Stephen King novel in middle school. Uh, it was Salem's Lot and growing up in New England, uh, you know, Stephen King, of course, uh, is a legend and a true king. And, uh, so I was an avid reader and I read everything from, you know, Stephen King to, you know, Mickey Spillane, uh, novels and, uh, I never was very big into like television. It was always, I wanted to read the book. And so it was reading horror novels. I read the Godfather series, uh, you know, in my tween years. Um, and interestingly, as I think about it, it was, for me, it was an escape. I knew that there was something else out there. I knew there was a, there was this other world out there from the world that I was living in. And so I was able to, get a, a glimpse of that and a view of that through reading. And I also, I loved to write when it came to, you know, school, you know, this will be, this will be an interesting conversation because people will see where this really turned on its head in school. I hated math, like with a passion. Uh, oddly enough, I spent 18 years as an investment banker. So, <laughs> so that's where it turns on a dime, right? I really, I loved English class. I loved reading. I loved language classes. Anytime I had an assignment that involved writing, I would dive right in. And I was really passionate about it. When it came to math, I was like, no, not, not me. Right. And so, um, as, as I moved into college, somewhere, somehow the writing, the writing was still fun and it was easy. I never, I was never one of these people that had, you know, a 12 page paper due and I was panicked over it. I always knew it wasn't going to be a problem to get it done. Yeah. Somewhere in my sophomore year, I took an economics course, intro to economics. I, I had the right professor. It was the right time and I just fell in love with it. And so I ended up becoming an econ major. I went on and got my MBA. And so I worked in New York, right, for 18 years uh, as a derivatives trader. And um, it's just hard for me now to, to kind of look back on that and think, I I had this passion, as you said, for something. And it suddenly 
the, the creative side of me was, was kind of put, put on hold. Mm-hmm. And I started doing what I thought everybody else wanted me to do. Right. I, I was the first one in my family to go to college and I graduated from college and I moved to New York city and the big bright lights and the tall buildings and the pinstripe suits. And, and I was working on wall street. Like nobody where I grew up ever went on to do that kind of a thing. And, and so like, that was the, that was my pursuit for so, so very long. And somewhere it was in the early 2000s and I reflect on this conversation now, but it never really hit me at the time. And it was a boss that I was working for. And he said, you know, it's kind of interesting. Like you're really, you know, you're really creative and you have this passion. And he's like, I noticed you're not as great when it comes to the math side of things as this other colleague that I was working with. And back then, you know, the, uh, the avatar in me, right. <laughs> it was just, it was anger. It was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm great at this, right. I'm great at my job. I'm how dare you try to compare me to somebody else. Now I sit back and I reflect on it and I'm like, yeah, I, I knew enough to be able to get through what really was driving me in my career. And what made me successful was my intuition. It was right. I was in a world where a lot of times I couldn't explain why I was doing certain things. It just felt right. And, uh, and now I'm like, yeah, I sit and I write and, um, I actually, uh, came back from vacation and I, I've started to work on, uh, my first, uh, fiction novel, um, combining, I'm, char- I'm birthing a new character, combining mental health and, uh, and, and some other things. And I, reflected again on that conversation. I'm like, yeah, people, people must have seen or known there was this other side of me, um, that I was suppressing for so very long. And now it's just pouring out and, and, mm-hmm. and it's become a way for me uh, to share my story. It's become a way for me to inspire other people. And, you know, I, I just love having that time where I'll sit down and, you know, 500 to a thousand words later, you know, through the course of an hour or two. And, and there's something there and it's, um, it, yeah. When I think back to my childhood, I was like, yeah, there was that, there was that side of me that was, that was blossoming when I was young. And, um, and, and here it is in full display. <laughs> and, and now I get to do it as part of my business. Yeah. The, the reason why I asked is this is pretty common with, you know, like myself, the men I coach, the men I talk to, you know, guests is that we'll see that we'll have this passion, this gifting, but somebody says something, whether it's a parent, a teacher, a friend, whomever. And we then set that part to sleep, right? We mm-hmm. just kind of, like you talked about, I wasn't good at math, but I had this as my front and center skill. And the writing just kind of takes a back burner. It almost is like a volcano that just, you know, becomes dormant for yes. a while. And when we heal, we do that, you know, that self work and we start becoming all we're meant to be. Then it's like, it comes back with a vengeance, right? Yes. Oh, totally. And, and you were talking about this, you know, the volcano analogy. And for me, it was dormant up until my time here in Colorado. So probably three years ago when I started seeing a therapist in Colorado and I was finding that the easiest way for me and, and she, she and I still laugh about this to express myself was I, I'm a very stream of consciousness writer. And, uh, so I can just sit down and out it comes and I edit it later. But what I was doing with her is I had my legal pad or my journal and something would pop into my head, a memory or something. And I would get it on paper, tear out those pages. And then I would go into my appointment with her and I would start the appointment by reading what I had written. And then I'd mash it up in a ball and I would just throw it over to her and she'd throw it in the, in the garbage. And that was like, you know, that was the end of that memory or whatever it is when we would process it. And so I was constantly doing that. I was constantly writing these things and it suddenly turned into 
you know, not only writing that, but the whole podcast came out of me writing a big piece of my story and wanting to put it out there during COVID and not knowing how to do it. And so I approached my co-host and I'm like, you know what we need to do? We need to start a podcast. Even though I've never listened to a podcast in my life, this is how people are getting their information. And so really the, the volcano erupted out of me feeling that was a really easy way for me to communicate with my therapist and get my thoughts down. And little by little, it turned into from there to, you know, writing articles and, uh, and then writing a chapter in this book that came out in September and now sitting, sitting down. And, you know, as I said, uh, I've, I've recently discovered medium and, you know, I go on there a couple times a week and I'll, I'll write from, you know, a place of, you know, where I'm feeling at the moment. And then to now thinking like, I, I'm going to, try to put out my first like fiction novel. <laughs> so yeah, crazy. That's phenomenal, man. And, and that's the thing I think is like, we almost wear like these masks, right? I was very much a chameleon. I had a whole slew of masks and it's like, we almost set those things aside and forget them to the point that when you are healing, you have to go through a whole process of going, what do I enjoy doing? What do I want? What are my dreams? You know, it's like those dreams have been like buried mm -hmm. and it's that process of uncovering. And now it comes back with a vengeance and it's something where you really accelerate and you're like, Hey, I didn't think about doing this. I'm going to do this. And now because you've healed, you also have this like a higher risk right? You just talked about jumping in on the podcast. I have no clue what it takes to start a podcast, but this is what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so I, I want to go from that, right? We see you now, whereas this, there's this resilience, high risk, you understand your dreams, but that's not always been the case. You talked about three acts yes. before we jump into that. You had mentioned, you know, like, hey, you got married to your wife. What act was it that you guys got married? Was it act one, two, or Oh, three? it was. Uh, so if I think of act one as kind of college through moving to Colorado. So we got married, right, very early on, uh, maybe the second song into uh, act one. So we graduated college in 90, I graduated in 93, moved to New York right away, started working. My wife graduated in 94. She followed me to New York. And then we were engaged in 95 and married in 97. And so to give your audience a bit of a, a timeline, I didn't speak about my mental health struggles until 2004. Mm. So almost. My understanding, yeah. like 10 to 12 years after having met your wife, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So she's seen you from who you were uh -huh. to, to obviously who you are yes. and gone through the whole process with you. It's not just, Hey, it's Eric going through this solo. No, you've, you've got your wife that's hooked up yes. and going through the journey with yes. you across the rough seas. Yeah. Wow. Which, which I want to point out for your audience mm -hmm. is I see that as like a superpower and a, and a, and a really important message. As I know a lot of people are fearful of what is going to happen if I open up and share what's going on with me and I've, and I tell my story and I'm here to tell you that you can share your story. And people are not going to run from you. People are not going to leave you. The people who care most about you in your life are going to stand by you. They want to see you heal. They want to see, as I say now, people are always like, how are you feeling? Are you better? Are you back to yourself? And I'm like, I'm not back to myself. Like I am a much better version of my former self. I don't ever want to get back to my old self. 
I love this new version of me. And so that's, that's a really important message. And the same goes for my, my co-host on the podcast. He's been married now for, uh, I believe 21 years. And as he started to share his mental health struggles, like he and his wife, like that she was, mm-hmm. you know, she, she has stood by him. And I think that is more common than people realize. Well, and I think the funny thing about it, Eric, I thought for the longest time, I'm hiding this. I'm protecting my wife from it. Dude, I could not have been more wrong <laughs> if if I had intentionally tried because m- my wife and those around me already saw what was going on, right? It's when you have almost like when you have a bad manager and you know what the problems are for that manager, mm-hmm. but everybody's pretending not to see I thought I was fooling everybody around me, mm-hmm. my wife included. And the truth was she already knew where the problems were. She had signed up because it, it wasn't because of, hey, I know one day these are going to go away. But there was something beyond that, right? Something yes. deeper. And in spite of that, um, and so when I started working on myself, she was like, thank God you're aware of this <laughs> finally kind of thing. We so. Yeah, we had, it was interesting. So, so when Amy and I met, I think we both met at a time and she and I both, and and I think that's another area where I'm very lucky. My wife struggles, you know, with uh, her own anxiety and OCD as well. Not, Hmm. not to the extent that I've, I have over my life, but we both met at a time when it was kind of like, not at its peak, right? So life for both of us, I was a junior in college. She was a sophomore in college. Things were going, I'm just going to use air quotes, like okay for us at that time. Uh, then my wife was struggling a little bit when we were living in New York. And so I saw like, I saw what was happening through her lens uh, and was able to help her, but I never broke down my wall or my barrier to say, Hey, you know, I'm going through something similar. And, uh, I, I, I feel like I could be given an Oscar for, uh, the performance (laughs) that I played in for the first 33 years of my life. And, you know, I hit it exceptionally well. Uh, I, I, I tell people now I, I had instances at work where again, I'm a grown adult male at this point in time mm. where I would, I, I would leave the trading desk and I would go into a bathroom stall and I would, I would curl up in a ball and I'd be crying thinking I can't, there's no way I can get through this day. Like I can't, people are going to see what's going on with me. Right. And so, um, so let's just start shattering and all those myths right now, Mike, about <laughs> we can't show our feelings. This never happens to men, right? I was that person. And, but I never let Amy in on it until, you know, 2004. I write about it in the book. I had my first of two, uh, dissociative episodes, uh, psychotic breaks. They used to call them nervous breakdowns, however we want to describe it. And I couldn't hide it anymore because there it was. It, it, had hit rock bottom and I was kind of this shell that, um, you know, I, I had to, I had to come clean. And from that point on, I've been super open and super honest. And then I took that to the next step where I said, I'm not just going to tell my wife and I'm not just going to tell my friends, but now I am going to have a public voice and I'm going to speak up and speak out. So that other people know that a, it's perfectly okay to not always be okay. And, and two, you're not alone. There's somebody else out there. Even if you've never met someone here, I am and I've gone through it and I've come out the other side, not only once, not only twice, but three times I've been able to come out the other side and I've grown and I've become stronger each time. And I've found my voice a little bit more and, uh, it can absolutely positively be done. Yeah. I think the important thing from what you've just talked about is it's a lifelong journey. It's not like we hit a destination and you're done, No, which so many of us expect. It's like, Hey, I just need to muscle through to power, you know, 
to just man up, right? Yes. I think we've all heard that phrase. And there's nothing further from the truth. This is like a marathon or an ultra marathon where it's like, take it in bite-sized pieces, deal with something. You don't need to try and, you know, rectify everything in one fell swoop. I love your marathon um, analogy. I talk about, I say that your mental health journey, mental health and your mental health journey is an endurance event. Yeah. And, and I'm guilty of this. So many of us, when we first seek therapy, and so for me, it was a combination of therapy, medication. And after a year, I felt great. So I thought, wow, I'm cured. Took myself off my medication, stopped seeing my therapist. And then I think we know what <laughs> happened after that. Uh, I alluded to it. And so I think we're all guilty, especially as men, as problem solvers, even if we kind of dip our toes into the water of talking about it and going to therapy, we think once we do that, everything's great and, and I'm done. Uh, I've solved the problem. And the reality is, right? It's this like giant ball of rubber bands. And each day we're kind of peeling away a different rubber band. And that's part of the journey is like discovering something new. So you peel it away, you get a little stronger and you grow a little more. There's no quick fix. There's no like easy answer. Um, it's all about wanting to do the hard work. And once you recognize that the hard work, just like training for an ultra marathon or some cr crazy distance event, the more you train, the stronger you get and the easier the event becomes. It's the same thing with our mental health journeys. The more we, the more work we do, the easier it is to go along that journey. And when roadblocks come up, we now know and we have the tools to be able to knock the roadblock out of the way and keep on moving forward instead of turning around and running from something. Yeah. And it doesn't mean we're not going to be exhausted at another point in the race. Nope. But but we have at least learned something, right? The more yes. we run, the more endurance we get, the more insight we have. I mean, it just builds upon itself. Um, I want to jump back a bit here. So you're working trading and I can only imagine that's gotta be like super stressful and you're already experiencing anxiety. Like what did the anxiety look like? before you started trading and then how did the trading impact it? Sure. So first of all, what better place for somebody that was in, and now I've been officially diagnosed with PTSD. And so it was more than just generalized anxiety. So what better place for somebody with, you know, an underlying PTSD, undiagnosed PTSD than wall street, right? No stress, not it's a very calm and placid place. And so for me before that, it manifested itself in anxiety and worry, physical and mental symptoms, physical symptoms, headaches, inability to sleep, agitation. And uh, that began, you know, very early on in my childhood years. What then came along with it was obsessive compulsive disorder and it can present itself in many different ways. And for me, it was, uh, so when we think of intrusive thoughts, these terrible, horrible, unwanted thoughts that spin around in our head 24 seven, uh, I always tell people, uh, if, if you are lucky enough to have never experienced OCD, which I hope many people haven't. It's as though you take that song, Baby Shark, and it spins in your head for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At some point, it drives you right to a point where, um, and then the, the anxiety around, I'm going to wake up every day and my head is going to be on this endless loop. And so for me, it was intrusive thoughts. Um, I write about it in, in the chapter. It was harm OCD, which, you know, I had this, this fear that I was going to harm myself or a loved one. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it was this constant worry of, um, am I, am I going to do this, this right. And, and pushing it away. That's not who I am. And, and having these compulsions and rituals that 
would give me, again, air quotes, a sense of control that if I did these things, if I turned the light switch on and off three times, if I checked the lock on the door to make sure it was locked three times, everything for me was in threes, then nothing bad would happen. And so it became this loop. And the more my obsessive thoughts and compulsions would take over, the more anxious I would become. And it would, it would ebb and flow. And so there would be periods where growing up and, and, you know, in my teenage years and in college where it would, would be extremely severe and debilitating, uh, to the point where I would have trouble getting out of bed, leaving the house. Um, I wouldn't feel safe and secure unless I was in, you know, a very comfortable place. Uh, and then there were other times where I was, you know, quote unquote normal and my head was quiet. My anxiety was at kind of a low simmer and, and I was able to, you know, carry out my daily life as though nothing was, you know, nothing was happening. And, and I would see other people and think, wow, I'm kind of just like everybody else. Uh, and we know that myth isn't true, right? And so I started on Wall Street and right away, right? The, my anxiety goes, you know, to 10 and it would, I would say I was somewhere between a five and a 10 for my entire career. And at some point, what happens is that five becomes the baseline now. And so I was constantly living in a world of anxiety and OCD, but at a five, for me, it was manageable. And so I didn't really think there was anything wrong, but then it would go to a 10 and I would think, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening again. I don't think I can go through with this again. Uh, and so I would battle it and battle it and battle it and put on the facade and make sure nobody saw. And sure enough, over time it would ebb again. I'd get back to a five and I think, okay, great. It's not going to come back again. And so I, that battle was waged for, you know, I was from the time I was seven and I can remember till the time I was 33 and I did, I did what men are taught. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't share my feelings. I didn't cry publicly. Uh, I, I tried to toughen up. I would try to tell myself like, you got to get up. You got to go to work. Like you got, and you just have to, have to, have to. And at 33, I broke, couldn't do it anymore. And I continued to work in the finance world until 2011. Uh, so it was another seven years. And I was learning a little bit how to be able to work in that environment. Not, I still didn't tell anyone in that world out of fear of them finding out. But I was seeing a therapist. I was talking to my wife. Uh, and so this is, and this is another stigma that I want to see broken in my lifetime. And I'm working on it now is people in these careers, lawyers and bankers and doctors, uh, who are in these super high pressured careers and who are struggling with their own issues and yet are so fearful that if somebody at work finds out about it, they'll lose their job. Right. And, or what'll happen to me. And so, um, I really want to do what I can to help shatter that and, and break down those walls so that people who are in careers just like me can walk into the office and know that they can, they're in a safe place where if they're not having a great day, then they share it with somebody. They're not going to get a knock on the door the next morning, like clear out your office. You're gone. Um, you're not strong enough. Like we need to have tough people around here. Yeah, that is a very pervasive and common like fear. And I think in certain places, because of who's managing, it's a real, mm -hmm. you know, situation, but you have to get to a point. Is it the job or is it my health? You know, where do I put myself? Because like you talked about, you went through those episodes of just like, Hey, okay, I reached a point, my body shut down. How far are we willing to push our body and then find out what the consequences are? Because while it may be okay, a couple times that third or fourth or fifth time, 
it may not be, and the consequences may not be recoverable. Like, you know, for me, I ended up, I thought it was a badge of honor. I was looking for validation from my work and sleeping four hours a night and taking work calls at 3 a.m. Dude, I, I have tremors in my left hand and I'm now spending time, effort, and, you know, energy to reclaim my health because of something I did chasing an empty brownie badge. <laughs> you know? Yes. It's like, it's, it, it doesn't pay off in the long term. The, the, the bill has to be paid at some point and it's how do you want to pay it and which bill do you want to pay? Um, because it's going to come due. I mean, is that yeah. like the similar thing you oh, see or absolutely. And I, you know, I, I observe it now. One of the places I see it a lot, I see it a lot in airports and airport lounges. And, um, mm. you know, and I think to myself, you know, I used to travel a lot on business and, and yeah, I'd be the one taking the call or as you said, getting up at night and my Blackberry goes off. And, and now I look back and I've, and I realize that there's no, as you said, there's no bad, nobody gives you a badge Mm -hmm. for doing those things. And in the, in the world of like, what's actually really important, when I think back to what I was doing career-wise, I wasn't saving the world. I was doing something I thought was important, right? But if we think about what's truly important, like the job of a world leader, where you're actually like trying to negotiate like a nuclear arms deal or dealing with you know the conflicts that we have going on in the world right now, like that's an important job. That's, you need to be up. You need to take a call. You need, other than that, and a doctor who's actually going in, you know, my neighbor's a, a trauma surgeon. He's going in because somebody's life is on the line. Otherwise, we're really not doing anything that's that important. And most of us can be fired in a second. Right. When companies are looking to cut costs or something's happening in the organization, nobody looks at the list and goes, yeah, you know, Mike, I'm, we're going to keep Mike because, you know, Mike, Mike always gets up at 3 a.m. to take those phone calls. And, and, and because of that, we're going to let somebody else go. No, they're going to let the person go who makes the most amount of money or when the role isn't needed. And so, People don't, people don't remember the good things that you've done. Right. And, and I, I learned it the hard way, but I see people now and I see them and I'm in, in an airport lounge and, you know, they're, they're taking call after call and, and I can feel the anxiety, right. Coming off their mm-hmm. body. And I just want to go up to them and I'm like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like you're most important, your health is most important and your happiness is most important. And that call that you're on and you're screaming about like these widgets didn't get here or there. Like it it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not changing the world and you need to, you need to take care of yourself first. And as you said, when we were talking about the writing piece, when you start to take care of yourself first and see things through a different lens, you really find out what brings you joy in life. And then you can actually go down the road of doing something that actually does change lives. Because if you find something that you truly love, chances are it, it goes hand in hand with something that'll make a real impact on others. And that's it's taken me a very long time in my life to be able to discover that and a lot of work. Uh, but it's, it is possible. Yeah. I think you and I get to stand here on the other side going, Hey, it took us a long time to discover this. Here's a gift. Don't take the time, take action. Now Yes. reflect on what you're passionate about, what your dreams are, what opportunities you have, and then look at it through the lens of if I made this decision, how detrimental are things and what's the likelihood of it? Because I built things up, 
you know, where it was like, this is the worst case and it's super likely. <laughs> and it, it was because I didn't separate, remove that anxiety and put on like a realistic lens yes. to look at it. And so it seemed like it was that dragon that was just going to burn me to a crisp if I went that direction. And it's not at all true. Yeah, no, you're so right. And what happens is, especially in so many work environments, mm -hmm. We end up like the amygdala is what's driving us 24 seven in the office. And so if we're already struggling with our mental health and, and we go from fight or flight mode, whether we're living in anxiety or depression or anywhere in the, in the spectrum there, we're already, we're already in a place where our brain is not functioning optimally. And so you go into a work environment, right? And people talk about like, oh, I've been putting out these fires and, and I'm like 24 seven, like you are in fight or flight mode and what that's doing to you mentally and what it's doing to you physically is literally killing you, literally killing you. And unless we learn how to pull back and we learn how to put up boundaries and we learn how to let the prefrontal cortex of our brains become the CEO. I always talk about the CEO of my brain was my amygdala for so long. And finally it realized, wait a minute, I'm sitting in the wrong office. <laughs> and then I had to do all this work to help the CEO move. And that's all the therapy I've done. And I've had to show them like, okay, we're going to walk down this hallway and we're going to take these boxes with us. And now we're going to, here's where the office is, right? Oh, you can now see out the window, right? It's like driving from the back seat. And that's kind of how many of us live our lives. And, and as you said, we think it's a badge of honor. It's, there's a reason why when, whenever you meet people, the first question I always hear is, well, what do you do for a living? <clears throat> and I think I'm not going to answer the question. Like I don't ask that question. And now when a lot of people ask me that I just turn away. I'm like, if, if what I do for a living is the most important thing to you, then you don't really want to get to know me as an individual. Right. But well, we're so trained and conditioned that yeah. what we do defines us. And it's so not the reality. Yeah. It's another one of those things we've just become acclimated to. It's normal. Yeah. And that's the default yeah. of how, when you meet somebody, how do you, you know, establish that connection? Yes. I think it's along the same lines of like, Eric, how are you doing? I'm yeah. expecting fine, good, something uh -huh. superficial and just to, uh, fulfill that question. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and We've, be like, I was honoring of your time and how you are. Yes. Check the box. We, for whatever reason, we have taken, how are you doing as a greeting? Mm -hmm. Instead of saying like, what's up? Hey, waving. How are you doing? Fine. No, 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 no. So when you ask me, and I'm sure this is with you, when you ask me, how am I doing? You better be ready because I am going to tell you how I'm doing. And it's been fun for me to see the transition with people from when I first started doing that and they weren't expecting it. And now people know, like if they ask me, how are you doing? They know I'm going to tell them like, oh, you know, I've, this hasn't been going so great. This has been really good. So you better be in a place and I'm going to ask you right back, how are you doing? And I am not going to let you get off with that closed ended, fine, good, okay. I truly want to know how you're doing and I, I want to be an ear. I want to listen. And that, I think that's something as we, you know, as we aim it here towards the audience, that's something, especially for men that we often don't realize how much we want someone to listen to us um, because, because we're so good at trying to solve the problem and answer that we don't recognize what, what it is that we're craving in our own lives. And that's for somebody to truly listen to us. And once we start to get vulnerable and share our story and recognize, oh, wow, somebody's listening to what I'm saying. Then we ourselves become better listeners and we're able to not problem solve for somebody else, but be there when somebody else needs us. And, and I think that's when the dynamic really starts to change.
Yeah, I hundred percent agree. Um, so when you got through making the change, right? You said enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you? How did you step into making those changes? Because how we see you now, resilient, high risk, comfortable in your own skin, you're not stressed out, you're aware of what's going on. But before that, I mean, you're in a high pressure situation, you've got your anxiety, it goes, you know, up to 10, it goes back down and then goes to 35, <laughs> you know? And so how did you, one, make that change, but then how did things around you change? I can only imagine like you're feeling the change in your life, the relationship between you and Amy changes. Like what was that all like? Yeah, that's a great question. So 2004, I started seeing a therapist, psychiatrist in New York. And even when I started to see my psychiatrist, and I'm guessing a lot of your audience can resonate with this. I remember sitting in there thinking, I can't tell him all these things. I can't let him know what's really going on with me. If I tell him what's really going on with me, they're going to call, he's going to call the New York city police. I'm going to be brought away in handcuffs. Like, so I was even guarded <laughs> going in to therapy and I'll never forget. There was a morning. So I, I used to schedule my appointments seven in the morning. He, he and I both lived on the Upper West Side. I was a, I wanted to do it. And then I could still be at the office before people were getting in. So nobody knew like what I was doing. I never told anybody. Uh, and every once in a while we'd have to do like an evening session and I'd kind of sneak out and I'd come up with some kind of an excuse to get me out of there. But it was one day I was sitting across from him and he said, you know, I notice you smile all the time. Hmm. And I was like, I do. He goes, yeah. He goes, you come in here. And he was old school. He was in his eighties. I love him, loved him to death. And he said, I I always notice you come in and you're always smiling, but you're coming in here to talk about things that you're struggling with. So why are you smiling? And I sat there and I just thought, this is one of those weird, like, (laughs) and then as the years went on, I realized I was like, oh yeah, that was my facade. Like, I didn't even want him to know what was really happening with me. So to answer the question, it starts in 2004 here I am. It's 2023. Uh, it's been like an 18, 19 year journey. If I'm doing my math correctly. Um, not good at math, as I said. And along the way, it's been a whole series of changes. So it starts with me going to therapy and it, then it's me deciding not to do therapy anymore and having a second dissociative episode, then really deciding, okay, I need to get serious about this and doing, you know, in-depth uh, therapy, adding to medications and speaking about it and being open and, and, you know, talking to Amy when, when I'd be struggling with things and not hiding it. And then the really big change comes in 2011 where we decide we're going to move to Colorado. We had come, we had been coming out here on vacation and skiing. And it's a place where I really found my true inner peace was being on the hill. And so we thought, well, if we're working in New York City, we're making all this money and we just go and we spend it to go on vacation. Why don't we just move to vacation? And so we moved to Colorado and that was really the first major life change was to be able to be in a place where I could be outside 365 days a year and I could find true joy in being on the snow, mountain biking, and all the other things that I did. And I continued, you know, with my medication, I would see my therapist on and off. And then three years ago, I hit another speed bump in the road. And I realized I need to start to add some other things to the equation. 
And so I came up with what I call my equilateral triangle of healing. So a lot of people will talk about a toolbox. And so for me, I, I envisioned a toolbox as something where you reach in and you take something out and then you use it and then you put it back. And then you, next time you reach in and maybe you pull out the screwdriver, um, and put that back. And I thought that's not how it works for me, right? For me, it's this equilateral triangle where, and I'm kind of okay with geometry. So <laughs> where all sides and all angles are equal. So it's a super strong triangle. And for me, there were three corners to it. There was what I named like Western. So that was traditional Western. It was talk therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, medication, all the traditional things. I introduced to that the Eastern side. So it was meditation and mindfulness. And I started to do Reiki, which I absolutely fell in love with. And the two of those kind of, played off of one another. And then the third one, which was there all the time, but I never realized it was, you know, the nature corner and it's skiing and mountain biking and being outside. And so for me, I don't reach for any one of those things at any particular point in time. They're all there and I use them together in different amounts, different times, depending on where I am in that particular day. And so maybe it's, I have a, a session with my therapist and then I'm out on the hill and I go skiing for three hours and that puts me in a really good place. Or I'm, I go mountain biking and then I go see my Reiki person. And, uh, and so I can draw upon any of those in different amounts and different quantities at any particular point in time. The important thing about the triangle is you need to be doing all of them to keep the triangle in place. And then I tell people, if you pull one of the sides away, the whole triangle crumbles. And so that's why I've always wanted to see it more as this three-dimensional piece for me, because it's important that I'm focused on all of those parts at all times. And and so when people talk about, well, I'm absolutely opposed to medication or I'm absolutely opposed to seeing a therapist or I always say, try everything because the answer isn't one right answer for everyone. Each person just as though they have a unique fingerprint and just like their mental health journey is unique, their healing journey will be unique as well. And There'll be a different combination of things for each person that works. So be willing to try lots of things. And if one thing doesn't work right away, try something different. I talk a lot about, you know, people who unfortunately will go see a therapist and for some reason it doesn't gel that very first meeting. And so they stop. And I say it's like online dating. That first therapist you go to may not be right, but there's somebody else. Try, try a different therapist. Different therapists are, have, are trained in different treatment modalities. Um, experiment with meditation and breath work. Experiment with getting out in nature. See how that feels for you. There's so many, you know, here in the West, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, in states are passing, you know, legalizing, you know, mushrooms and, so there's lots of work being done with, uh, you know, psilocybin and other, um, psychotic, uh, psychotropic meds. And, um, there's, there's so much out there and there's so much like we've yet to explore. Try, try it all and see what works because there will be something or some combination that will work for you. Um, and there's no reason. And, and I, and I always like to say this and I'm sure it's the same for you, Mike, you know, I went through this. It didn't happen to me. It happened for me. So I can be here to tell my story. And I look back and it didn't have to be that way for me. And I don't want it to have to be that way for anyone else. So look at me, look at Mike as examples of what can happen when you don't speak out. And when you don't tell someone and when you try to push it down and look at us now in today's life as inspirational examples of what life can be like when 
you start to talk about it and you take the jackhammer to the boulder that's in your way. <laughs> there's lot, there's hope and there's help and there's a way through um, for each and every one of us out there. And a hundred percent, the amazing thing, and you, you and I are great examples in this. You do things a little more creative, a little more fluid. I, because of my personality and kind of my bent, I'm more rigid. Like I have a routine. I know it works. I sample and try other stuff, but the thing that both of us did, and this is the crucial part is we tried things to get us out because if we continue to do nothing, like not taking action for a different outcome, we stay in that spot and that doesn't benefit us or the people around us. And it just continues to perpetuate, carries on to our children. I mean, the amazing thing you're talking about a boulder, right? Yep. For me, I look at it and part of what drives me is I know that in my children, my grandchildren and future generations, I have the opportunity to take action for myself, which then the benefit, you know, the consequence, if you want to see it that way, is that the legacy that they inherit is completely different than what, like, you know, many of us inherit and we keep those patterns going. Yep. And I do want to ask yep. you, um, because you're an avid reader, mm -hmm. like, what would you say, like, when you were looking back and starting the journey, what are like two to three books or resources that would have helped you kind of speed along that would have given you the insights that you lacked at that time that now are like, you know, the things that were game changers for you? Sure. So there's, there's two books that rocked my world when I read them. Uh, the first was uh, by Simon Sinek. Mm. What is your why? Find your why. And as I was reading that book, it, it was three years ago, a little over three years ago. And I was trying to figure out like, what's that next act? And as I started reading it, it was all about, it's not what you do. It's not how you do it. It's why you do it. And if you can figure out why you want to do something, everything else falls in place around it. And that's how all of this and all of From Survivor to Thriver and all the things I do came to be because I realized my why is that I want to be able to live in a world where people can speak openly and honestly about their mental health struggles without fear of judgment. And I, and I thought, there it is. And so now I can sit there and go, what can I now do and how can I do it that ties back to my why. Uh, the other one, and I'll keep it clean for our listeners is Mark Manson's book, the subtle art of not giving a app, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Uh, that book was recommended to me by one of my ski mentors when I was teaching here. Um, and I had been kind of struggling a, a bit around, you know, my own perception of my skiing. And, and he's like, I have just the book for you. And I read that book. And it basically, I mean, the premise of that whole book is in your life, you, you have a finite amount of blanks to give. So you need to figure out what the important things are that you're really going to give a blank about. And the other stuff is just noise and learn how to cast it aside. Those two books, game changers for me. Yeah. You're so right. It's like, there's only so much energy yes. focus that we can give to things. You know, we're not like this endless supply of energy. No. And so just going, what's the priority? Yeah. What can I give to without fully being depleted? Like, you know, you and I have both been in those places um, where it's like, we're depleted so much that we have nothing to give no, at all, and, even and, to ourselves, right? No. And a, and a friend of mine uh, who was a trainer for SEAL Team 6 and taught skiing with me, he, he talks about it really well. So people like you and I, we go through our careers, we go through our lives, and we're all, we say yes, 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 yes. And we think like, all right, I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to multitask, and I can do all these things great. And he talks about this really great example. I won't get into the details. It's essentially 
we toggle in life. You can really only do one thing at a time. If you add a second thing, you're toggling back and forth. And so instead of doing each at 100%, you're kind of doing both at 80. And then if you add another thing and another thing and another thing. And so until we learn how to really create boundaries and we learn how to say no to things so that we can say yes to the things that are really important and really put our energy there and focus. And that's, you know, really when it comes to, to mental health, it's all about learning how to say yes to ourselves and taking care of ourselves first, because that way we can become much stronger individuals. It'll then allow us to say yes to some other things because now we're functioning at a hundred percent capacity. We're not functioning at 75 or 50%, uh, and, and trying to, you know, serve all people at all times. Yeah. It allows us to focus on that great things in our lives, yes. not just the good things. Yes. Um, dude, Eric, thank you so much oh. for coming and sharing your story, the transformation, how you've gone about it really encouraged and so appreciate it. Thank How you can so men much. connect with you? Oh, absolutely, brother. <laughs> I'm grateful <laughs> we for could, you I being could talk here. all day. I know your family's coming in. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Eric, how can men connect with you sure. outside of this podcast, man? Absolutely. And I, for anyone who's listening today, if, if you're thinking, Hey, Eric sounds just like me, or I'd love to just reach out and say, Thank you for sharing that wisdom. Or if you need someone just to listen, uh, because you may not have anyone in your sphere. Uh, and, uh, and I'm well practiced. I facilitate a, a men's group here in the valley that I live in in Colorado. So the best way to reach me is to go to, uh, my website, which is from survivor to thriver.com. And on there, you'll find, uh, there's a section where you can reach out to me directly. It goes right to my email and I read all my emails. I respond to everything. Uh, there's links to all of my social channels. I respond to all, let's put this way. I respond to all appropriate DMs. <laughs> uh, and I'm, you know, I always love to hear from people, uh, whether, uh, I'm impacting them in a, in a positive way, or if there's something they're struggling with and they're, they're just looking for, for some help. There's uh, a link to our From Survivor to Thriver uh, podcast. Uh, so new episodes of the podcast come out every Tuesday morning. And I think we're, we're uh, somewhere in the 140s and, Really great stories of people uh, have gone from surviving to thriving. Uh, so you can reach us there. Uh, and uh, I was recently uh, a collaborator on a mental health book called Scars to Stars. And I wrote a chapter in there called Tell Someone, which really is, you know, dovetails with the conversation we had uh, today, Mike, where I share the story of when I first told somebody uh, and opened up about my mental health struggles and what that was like. And I use that story as a roadmap really for why it's important to tell someone and talk and, and open up uh, and also the dangers of what can happen to us. And I walk through my 2004 dissociative episode in detail uh, and the danger of what can happen to us if we decide not to do that. So again, it's from survivor to thriver.com. Appreciate it. Eric, thank you so much, my friend. Mike, thank you. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much, my friend, for joining me on another episode. If you found the information within the show helpful, please leave a review on the platform you're listening to. It helps raise the show's visibility so other men can join us in breaking free. See you on the next episode. And remember to continue putting yourself out there. Have a great one.